Live from the summit in Scottsdale, Arizona, the Core presents Sales Training Bootcamp with Josh Sigmund and Oleg Dakash. Today's topic, leadership assessment and development. All right, welcome back. Everyone get some coffee in them? A little bit? All right. This will be a fun conversation. So uh, we're going to be talking about leadership assessment and development. And uh, if you were in a class with Oleg, I'm sorry, Oleg, uh, with Gavin and I in the last one, there will be a little bit of overlap and a lot of stuff that's different. So you can choose to stay or go. That's up to you. Um, that being said, what we're going to really dive into is, uh, is first of all, kind of our, le- our own leadership stories. We're going to focus on Oleg's because I think there's a lot of learning lessons throughout that. Um, most of you at some point have heard or read or been told about the five levels of leadership. So we're going to talk about the five levels of leadership. We'll very briefly dive into the dysfunctions because there's a different class on that. Um, we're also getting some tactics because I, what I really do think is when you leave this at the end, we want to make sure that there's some specific tactics that can use to A, identify and, and B, develop, uh, develop people, what those tools are. Because uh, as I believe and Oleg believes, uh, leadership uh, for yourself and also development is an ongoing thing. It's a forever learning uh, environment. It's, for, it's forever evolving uh, there's a million different books to tell you which way is the best way to do it. They're not all right. There's a best way for you, for your business. And so we want to kind of dive into those tactics that we personally use with our, with, within our own organizations. Um, so with that, I'm excited to teach with Oleg for the second time. Um, and you guys already got to hear briefly Oleg's numbers story. Um, if, you don't, if you guys don't know, Oleg's been doing business mortgage lending for 13 years, seven years in the core. And so it's really interesting um, to see how far uh, he's skyrocketed. And why it's a good lesson in leadership and why we want to start with his story specifically is because I think when you get into um, smaller teams or uh, you've been stagnant, kind of same size team for years and years and years, it's really difficult to kind of forward thought and put yourself in what needs to be done to make that next jump. And I would argue most of the time it's developing the leaders behind you. If you don't have some sort of leadership development behind you, you can never go to the next step. Um, there's a couple of books that really focus on this. I know GE had this uh, as a kind of a lesson. You must train your replacement. You're always training for the next job, but before you can go to the next job, you got to train your replacement. It's one of those things that uh, you got to be super passionate about, which is a little bit different uh, of thought of being the producer versus being the leader. It's a big change in thought process, right? So I'm just really excited to coach alongside Oleg once again, and this is my buddy Oleg. Thank you, Josh. So, um, and you and you guys all know, like Josh is so unbelievably impressive. Um, he's the kind of person he could read a book and then read it back to you without having the book in front of him. It's pretty crazy what his retention's like. I'm I'm the opposite. I need to read the book like seven times. Um, you know, make a bunch of mistakes, uh, go back, um, have somebody read the book to me, listen to it, and then maybe I'll kind of get it. So it's super. Um, it's an honor being on stage with Josh. Hopefully I can provide as much value as he can. Um, you know, what, what I want to start off with, kind of share a story with you guys of my most pivotal leadership moment and something that completely just shifted my whole mindset on how important leadership is um, to our business, to our results. Um, so let me take you back. This is about six years ago. Um, I just came back from the... Um, Summit, uh, the, the one that you guys all hear about, the one that I was brought on stage for the wrong, wrong reasons, right? Um, so basically, 
I'm sitting there, and it's Friday night, and it's about 6 o'clock, and I'm sitting there, and my, my third assistant, my last assistant that I had, just gave notice two hours ago. Now, I sat there in silence for two hours because I couldn't believe what just happened. So I get back from the core, I'm super fired up, I'm extremely intense, I'm ready to go, and basically I had three people and a processor, a four-person team, my processor had been working with me since we were 18, or since I was 18 years old, just got into mortgage industry, she was my second processor, and you know, here I am, uh, 26 years old, we've been working together ever since. And, um, you know, two weeks prior, she left my team. She's like, hey, I just can't work for that guy anymore. I just can't. After that, we get, we get a new processor in, and I'm like, hey, you know what? She's just not, she's just not tough enough. She just doesn't have it in her. You know, for me to get there, I need, a, you know, I need, you know, different people, all that. So um, then at that point, um, I had three people, new processor. One of the team members just wasn't cutting it. I mean, she... Uh, kept making mistakes and all that. So I figured, hey, you know what? Cut her, right? Let's get rid of her. So now I'm down to two people. And um, the two people that I had, uh, one of the two uh, approached me and said, hey, you know what? This person's really holding us down. You really have to, we have to rebuild. We have to get the right people. If we're going to go here, we got to do this. And so she convinced me to let her go. And at that point, it sounded like a great idea. So I did, and now I'm down to one person. And this is like, I'm down to one person on Monday with a new processor, and this is my, my number one person. You guys all have that person that you get, you just, business doesn't just work without them, right? You guys all have that person on your team. This is my person. And Friday night, she comes into my office at four, and uh, goes, hey, I really have some bad news. And I'm like, hey, you know, what's going on? And she goes, um... I'm sorry, but I just accepted a uh, job offer. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. She's like, yeah, I'm sorry. These people are like family. Um, and I, I no longer could, you know, I'm, you, know you, you obviously have a lot of things you're dealing with. I just can't. I, I need to go and work for them. And I'm like, okay, like, and, you know, a million things are running through my mind. And I'm doing everything I can to keep her there. You know, we all had those moments, you're sitting there, and it's kind of like, what is it going to take? Because at that point, you're really, really desperate, right? After trying everything, you know, throwing money at her, you know, offering stuff, I mean, just everything, she said no, and then she goes, hey, there's one more thing i got to tell you. And I'm like, okay, well, how bad could it be, right, at this point? And she goes, today's my last day. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're, you're tell- I'm like, you just told me to let somebody go. You just told me to let somebody go, and I did, and now you're telling me today's your last day. She's like, yeah, I'm sorry, look, I, I, I'm sorry, she just left. So I'm sitting there, and uh, my branch manager comes in, and, um, and, and here I am sitting in the dark, lights turned off, you know, it was, it, it, it was in January, so at 4 o'clock, it's still light outside, at 6 o'clock, it's dark. So, I mean, I just sat there, and my branch manager comes in, and he goes, you know, Everybody's expecting you to fail right now, right? I look back at him and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. Like, like, I get it. So I sat there, and first it was like, I'm, I'm the victim, you know. They're, they, can't, they can't live up to this. They can't do this. They're not tough enough. They're not this. It's not me. It's them. And as I sat there for 
for hours um, just thinking about everything, it just it just it hit me. It's like, no, it's it's not them. It's you. And I asked myself a simple question that I challenge every one of you to ask yourself during, you know, whether it's today, during this um, class, whether it's uh, this weekend, whether it's on the plane ride back. The, the question is, and you've got to be really brutally honest with yourself when you answer this, the question is, would you work for you? Would you work for you? And as I asked myself this question, the answer immediately was no. I'm like, I would, I would not work for me. Like, like no. And so then I started, then at that point it was like, hey, it's all your fault. And instead of playing the, you know, and having that victim mentality, you know, you take ownership of everything. And that shift in, in, in making me realize, one, it's all your fault. Two, they, our team, isn't wired like us. They are not like us. They're not going to be like us. If they're like us, they're not going to be on your team. They're going to become an LO and build their own team. And that's okay, right? And they should do that if they're wired that way. But the point is, they're not like us. Therefore, how you approach each situation, how you approach how you train them, how you approach you know, who you are when you show up with them, how do you approach all that, it has to be a lot different than how we would approach it with yourself or, you know, with me and Josh or you and maybe, you know, uh, uh, some exec on your team. So um, now it's like anything happens, I take full responsibility for it. If, if our leads are down, it's my fault. If our conversion's down, it's my fault. If we're closing late, it's my fault. I blame myself for everything. And the reason why I do that is because too many people, I feel like if their team, let's say you're closing a deal late or your team quotes wrong or something happens, well, a lot of a lot of times it's not the team. It's because you really one you, maybe you overwhelmed them with deals. Two, maybe you didn't train them properly. And, and too many people, because they want to walk around point fingers and say, "Hey, you know what? It's not me. I'm perfect." And don't get me wrong. Sometimes it isn't my fault. But still, I'll take responsibility for that because at the end of the day, looking at it as it's my fault. How am I going to change? How am I going to fix it? What direction am I going to go? I feel like changes not only your mindset, but the outcome and the execution of whatever that tactic that you come up with to solve it, not only now, but, you know, moving forward. So with that said, um, I want to do a little bit of table work when we start off and just kind of everybody go around the room and share what was your leadership pivotal moment that you had in your business. Who's seen the movie Bad Bosses? Just, the, just like eight of you? Like, I laughed my butt off. Problem was is that I've been the bad boss before, right? What I, what I think when you go back to your pivotal moments, uh, it, it, it's really evident to you because there was one of two things. It's always one of two things only. When I put in this context, I think it'll be really easy for you to identify what you're trying to do and what you're looking for, okay? Almost all the stories you told was based on a moment that, uh, if you think back of who the worst boss is that you ever had, and what the behaviors and characteristics of that boss were, that was half the stories at your table. And the other half the stories at your table for pivotal moments is, the best boss I ever had, 
the pivotal, the pivotal time they showed up big for you, behaviors and characteristics of the best bosses you ever had, was typically what you wrote down on the other half of the table for those pivotal moments in leadership. Am I wrong about those, th- those two things? I can't see a lot of buy-in, so here's what I'll make you do. Write down the name of the best boss you ever had. The name. You have one. You can all remember it. The best boss you ever had. Write down the three behaviors and or characteristics that you recall of what made that person the best boss for you. Also, write down the name of the worst boss that you ever had. And underneath that name, write down the three behaviors or characteristics that makes that person stick out in your mind as being the worst boss ever. It makes it really simple for you. All right, Lizzie, what's, what was a uh, characteristic of the best boss? I want to say the name. Um, she was really charismatic. Charismatic. What's another one? Uh, very knowledgeable and a good problem solver. Knowledgeable, great problem solver. Cool. What were the characteristics of a bad boss? Um, she was emotional, unforgiving, and lacked uh, like vision and training systems. Lacked at vision and training systems. Interesting. Spoken like a true engineer, right? Cool. Just pick somewhere of this runway. Best boss, characteristics. He encouraged me to go to get into sales, so he saw in me something that I didn't see. Saw in something you didn't see. Love that. Worst boss. Um, he would only speak to me like in meetings, never showed any special interest. Didn't care about you, or at least he didn't feel like he cared about you. Cool. Table behind you. Um, best boss, I said, sees more in me than I see in myself. Really high bar. Always had my back. And yells and is done. I know who that was. Okay, cool. You all can guess. <laughs> Worst boss, um, I was always scared that I was in trouble, and he made me feel stupid. Made you feel scared and stupid. That's great. Awesome. One more. Anybody? Here you go. My boss was Lisa Wells, and she always treated my loans like her loans. She made very clear her expectations, and they were much higher than I would set for myself. Um, and she would always try new things, and if they didn't work, she'd quickly change. I love it. Cool. So here's, you heard some commonalities, but here's really the truth. If you just sat down in your room for 10 minutes, you drew out all the things, the behaviors and characteristics, of so those things you specifically look for, of the good boss category, and same thing for the bad boss, you know what you're looking for. When you go back to attraction, when you go back to trying to develop, do more of the good stuff and look for the good people. Do less of the bad stuff and, and look for fewer of the bad people, right? I hate to say that simply, but it's the truth. In these pivotal moments, as we go through the five levels of leadership, I'll tell you that what's happening when you hear some of the pivotal moments were on the negative side, it's what drags you backwards as a leader. So I want to quickly, in 10 minutes or less, go through the five levels of leadership, because I know most of you have heard this. But I think what's really interesting is if you focus on what is required to go to the next level and what will draw you backwards, that's what you're trying to avoid. I'm really clear that I make a lot of mistakes. I know that all of us do. What I'm just trying to avoid is stepping on the big landmines, right? Because apologies go a long way. Learning and growing goes a long way. But there's certain landmines that once you step on, you'll never be forgiven by most people. And that's what we're trying to avoid, okay? So uh, when you go to the five levels of leadership, number one is obviously positional, okay? Positional leadership is people work with you because they have to. Uh, I think of three examples of, of people who do what they do for you, not because they have a relationship with you, not because they want to, but they have to. Start with children. 
if you've ever had the conversation before, where you say, you know why you got to do that? Because this is my house and my rules. You're in a position of authority, unless they're willing to move out at age seven, they're going to do what you say, you're going to beat their butts. Okay? Take that to the next level, think about the military. It's always the first thing I think about. If an enlisted man or woman talks back to an officer, man or woman, what happens to that person? They go to the brig. It doesn't go well. They get their pay decreased. Bottom line is, is that the officers are the enlisted end of story. So charge that hill, not because you want to run into the machine gun. It's because I told you to. Okay? No relationship required. Unfortunately, most, if not all, of the bad bosses that you had will fall or fell at some point into this category. At some point, you have the thought of, if I didn't need this job, or if I could find something better, I would leave. Right? And what we want to avoid is having people work with us because they have to, because they need the paycheck. Right? And that's where we see a lot of problems within leadership, is they never progress to the next level. Okay? So people follow you because they have to. Um, I know that... Uh, I think we've all been guilty of that. I think most of the people in the room are relational. And so most of you at least inherently started at a, a second level of leadership. Um, but maybe you fell back at some point, and, and it's, it's told by when people leave you, they don't leave you over money most of the time. They leave you over a relationship or lack thereof. Okay? The second level leadership, go ahead. Yeah, let me add one thing to that. So the the... I think the biggest mistake that I see LOs make, and I've made this mistake before, but when it comes to the position um, level, it's that mindset that I pay you, so I own you nine to five or whatever hours, right? And they that's the way they talk to their people and they treat their people, and that's the way their people feel. Like, if that's your mentality with your team is, hey, you work for me, so if I tell you to, you know, jump, you say how high... That's going to end really, really, really quick. I just want to throw that in there. That's a great example of position leadership. Yeah, so what I, I love that you said that because uh, one thing that always re, re, re goes through my mind a lot is uh, people were like, what, uh, the employee-employer relationship is a marriage without love most of the time, right? It's a relationship without love. How many marriages last a lifetime without love? Okay. So if you think that that's a possible relationship that you have with some of your employees, then the reality is is that uh, if you don't start developing those next levels of leadership, they'll stick around until there's a better option. The second there's a better option, whether that be more pay, a more charismatic leader, uh, a, pr- a presumption of a better opportunity, once there's the other option, they will leave. And that's the real problem. Okay. So second level of leadership is, all, is obviously relational leadership. Okay? There are pros and cons here. Um, relational leadership is great because people work with you because they like you. And I think of my personal situation. I know several of you have fallen this before. The first hire or three are who? Oh, your bestie. Your bestie. Because we love them, so we're going to take them along for the ride. Right? And so we hire our other friends that, like, come, come join me, follow me. And we're in this relationship, which is great at the beginning, because we're all having fun. Right? What do you think the biggest hang-up of, of development of leadership is within that role when you are besties? What's the problem? Okay, that's a great way. Her answer was, as an I personality, you, want, uh, you don't want them to not like you. Like is an emotion, right? What's the other answer? Conflict is usually the big issue, right, which comes into that. Uh, we have a really hard time reprimanding, fixing problems, having adult conflict with our besties. 
Because they've been their besties. We've been through hell and, and, hell and back again in a lot of cases, right? So that's usually the issue. That is the pivotal issue that really comes up. Um, so I hired a guy that was my team captain for a while. It's actually a cool story. I ran across this guy literally last week, and I haven't seen him in seven years. Uh, but many of you guys know that I hired a team captain uh, about 10 years ago, and we were buds. We had kids 12 years ago now. We had kids at the same time. We were at everyone, each other's birthday parties. We went hunting all over, the, all over Texas together. Uh, we were talking before hours. We worked out together. We talked after hours. We were intertwined, right? Um, we started having conflict about direction and vision and all these issues where we were not aligned was the bottom line. That was the problem. We were just simply not aligned. And I kept on holding back. And I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I didn't want to beat him over the head. I certainly wasn't going to write him up because he's my best friend. And that all went well and good until one day I showed up at a coffee house that I go to to meet the same agent every year for 15 years now. And the next table over was this guy meeting with my number one competitor in a job interview. Whose fault was that? It was mine. Now, I did have a lot of fun with it. I walked over and said, hey, dude, when you're done talking to him, come on and over and talk to me next. I'd love to know what you guys are talking about. So I had some fun with it, but it ended badly. So badly so that literally last Saturday was the first time that he and I have had a conversation in 10 years. We ran across each other at a place called Worst Fest. Worst Fest is a salute to sausage in New Braunfels, Texas. It's a great uh, place to go. He had a few drinks, I had a few drinks. We ran across each other. We were besties again. So it was really good to see him again. But the relationship ended, the employment ended, right? The third level of leadership, did you have any, by the way? Perfect. Third level of leadership is production leadership. Okay? This is about results in general. So when you really think about it, people follow you because of what you have done. Because of what you've accomplished. Because of what you've done. So when you think about the law of attraction... When you find somebody that, you're, that has achieved, that has accomplished, that has done something beyond the ordinary, people will go to work for that person because of what they feel like they can gain from it, right? Like, have you ever had somebody join your team or your company and take a pay cut because they want to be around you and learn from the best? Has that ever happened to any of you? Raise your hand. Cool. That's probably results-based leadership. More than likely, that's where you you fell at that, at that point. So the key here, when it comes back to results-based leadership, is uh, there's a, a problem or a landmine which comes to relevancy. Right? Like, there, if you don't keep on developing relationships, if you don't give them the opportunity or the next step, and you stick with results, at some point, if you're doing a good job, you're going to help them grow past you. What most people, what poor leadership does when those pivotal moments come in, is when the results leader who's the king of the castle puts their hand on you and says, but not you. I'm not going to give you the opportunity yet. Um, you're going to be my assistant always. I know you say you want to do this, but why don't you just do this for two or three more years? The promise for promotion, if, when, and then it just never kind of comes up. At some point, when they feel like they've gotten everything out of you, and you don't give them the opportunity to go to the next level, you, they just work with you because they have to until there's a better option. So just like that, the ivory tower takes you back down to um, the, the first one, which is positional-based leadership. Do anyone's story revolve around that? Do anyone have a story like that at the table? See a couple nods. Okay, perfect. Um, I think we can identify these in a lot of organizations. I think that a lot of people that are producers, which is our room, stay in this area for a long time, and very few really develop past it, if I'm being honest with myself. right? I think a lot of us 
people, you know, like the law of attraction, and people say the nice things about you, and people encourage you, and people uh, are like the pop, puppy dog at your, at your ankles just wanting to be around you because of what you've done, and they want to be around you for that reason and that reason only. But it, it ends. That thing ends, especially when you have your off year or you change your vision or you don't go to the next level and you're not personally developing. Okay? The fourth one is the personal development, the people development. And I think that this is one where Oleg, I know Oleg has a story. I've got a couple, I see a couple of great leaders in the room that I know for sure have done this. Rick's a great example of this, of this area as well. But people development is, uh, is about reproduction. So people work for you because of what you're doing for them. You're growing them to the next level. People work for you because of what you have done for them, what you're actively doing for them, right? When you think about uh, how few companies take a personal interest in personal family budgets and, and teaching the team how to make money and how to save money and help them with that, that's an example of what you're doing for them. Uh, an example would be if you take an RP1 and you turn them loose or uh, you take an LP1, you develop them into a junior loan officer, and then you turn them out on their own, those homegrown people that work with you and for you because of what you've done for them, there's a loyalty there that lasts for decades in a lot of cases, right? Um, I work still for Todd and Rita and Rick, not because of the pay. It's not because of the pay, I promise you. I work with them because I can't pay back what I've made and accomplished because of their help. And I know most of the coaches, if not all the coaches in the room, do that because of what they've done, what they've done for them. Does that make sense? When we look around uh, our own teams and our own organizations, there's a question that I believe all employees ask eventually if they've not already, which is, unfortunately, but it's the truth for all of us, what's in it for me, what have you done for me lately? There is that question always, right? Until a point where there's so much that you've done for me, I can never repay, and so I'm on your bandwagon forever. It's yours to screw up. So when you look around your team, I would start putting an asterisk on people of, I have not done enough for these people yet. Who are the people on my team I've not taken a deep enough interest on? Who are the people on my team that I need to encourage, I see more in, Think about how many stories were they saw more of me than I saw myself. Who are those people that you need to prod and encourage and take the next level, not wait for them to ask you of it, right? That's the difference of getting people to that level of the the people uh, development. People follow you because of what you've done for them. I know you had a story around this for sure. Well, Josh, I have a question for you. Why do you think... A lot of people struggle going from the production level to, uh, to the uh, people development level. Um, I probably, I've got two answers uh, that I believe are truths. One is so many of us are more concerned with our needs and our wants and our goals than the people around us. If we're really honest with ourselves, a, a lot of deep personalities are drivers and we're going to get ours. And there's a wake around us, Right. So I think that that's one thing, that's a stopping point for sure. Uh, I think it's based in fear, by the way. I think that for the most part it's based in fear. And that fear might be of, I'm not, of my own success, but also fear of it's a zero-sum game. If you're successful and you work for me, then I'm not successful anymore. If you become the best loan officer in the company, then I'm not going to be the best loan officer in the company. And so I will hide my trade secrets from you instead of, here it's all, take everything. I want to see you blow up, and I want to see you succeed. And I, th- I think there's a lot of that fear that comes into it. 
Um, I think the other thing is we just don't naturally know and are born into leadership. I think it's a skill that's developed and learned. So I don't think a lot of people wake up trying to be jerks, right? But I guarantee all of us, by some of our employees, have been called jerks whether we know it or not. Guaranteed, right? So it's the lack of knowing what to look for or the, the intentionality about helping people get more of what they want. We know in turn we'll get a lot more of what we want out of people as well. So that's my two best answers. That's good. Um, you know, that's one thing I want to touch base on. I think a lot of us here do get stuck in, in, in the uh, production level, and it's all because of fear. It's because it's about us versus when it's level four, it's about them. And when it's about them, I think that's when you really start building culture. Culture is something everybody talks about. You know, why is this company great? Culture, culture. It's when it's about them. And the thing that a lot of people don't realize, um, it's not long training sessions. It's not you sitting down with them on a Saturday for three hours and explaining. It's you jumping in in those little moments and saying, hey, this is how you do this, this is how you do that, hey, this, hey, let me show you here. Let me, you know, instead of saying, hey, call on these people, you say, watch me call on them, then let's role play together, and then let's have you call on them, and then I'll sit here and watch, and we'll go back and forth. That's the difference, um, and I feel like when people get to that people development level, that's when you start to really grow the people around you, and like Josh said, that's when, it, that's when you create loyalty. When you create loyalty and you, and you have the people that work for you not because of the pay, right? Because at the end of the day, there's always somebody paying more, especially in this market right now. Like, let's face it, there's some people throwing some crazy money at your people. And if your people are leaving you, it's because you're not on level four with them. And that's because you feared making them great because you feared they're going to leave because of that. Great people will leave when you don't work on making them great, period. Okay? Just something to think about. Now, Josh, why don't you uh, tell us about level five? No, I love that, and I want to finish that thought because he touched on two things that made me, uh, that reminded me of some key concepts here, right? One of the things we we always want to know is what's the landmine that's going to take us backwards, right? So there's not a quantity or a definition of when's enough enough, right? Like, it'd be arguable about did Rick do enough for me at when I already had a million in the bank versus when I had five million in the bank versus when I had ten million in the bank versus whatever, right? So what's that point? You never know as a leader, right? But the bottom line is, is that if you stop pouring into them, people, that, that relationship between people when uh, we've, most of us have had that mentor that poured in and poured in and poured in and poured in, and that you develop a great relationship around, uh, around that piece, about that mentor-mentee relationship, and then you stop pouring into them. And you stop developing the relationship. And that's where it stops to grow. And I believe that your business and your relationships are either growing or dying and they can't stay stable. It's going up or it's going down. So it's when you stop pouring into people and you stop uh, building a relationship, it's going to go the other way eventually. That's what happens. Because we know when you, leader, were at your best, when you did the most, when you are fully engaged in my success, when we stop doing that, we risk the relationship forever, right? Um, so it's a, again, it's a forever game. If you're going to be that development uh, leader, it's a forever game of taking care of and building and building and building. A great example for me and the rest of the coaches is the, my favorite part of the summit is something that most people in this room will never see. It is the pre-meeting before the summit starts, and it's the post-meeting on Saturday morning. And what's unbelievable about those two meetings that is the example of this type of leadership 
is more than half of the meeting is focused about what uh, what helps us individually as coaches. It's Rick giving us spot coaching. It's Rick developing us. It's Rick pouring into us, giving us a little bit more to learn, to work on, to improve as a public speaker, to improve as a leader, to improve as a producer or a salesperson. That's scripting that you guys all saw this morning. He did with us this morning before that, so we got a double dose of it. Pouring in, pouring in, pouring in. More than half the agenda was about making us better. At the very end, what it, the first half of the meeting on Saturday mornings, it's not about the surveys and his results. The first half is, what it, were your biggest takeaways? What are you going to do about it? What can I hold you accountable to? It's pouring back into us to make sure that we, the coaches, got something valuable out of this uh, uh, organization for the last three days. That's super rare. A three-hour meeting on both sides, more than half of it's about developing us before he asks for what he needs to get out of us. Does that make sense? So that's what that is. The fifth level of leadership is called pinnacle leadership. Okay? If you, the easiest way to describe it is people work for you because of what you represent. Okay? It's a purpose thing. What you represent. People work with you because of what you represent. So it's a complete buy-in into your vision and purpose. What you're doing, uh, maybe the way that you take care of people, maybe it's uh, because you're a millennial and so much money every year is given to these charities and I buy into those charities and, th- and this company represents that giving and paying, paying it forward in the community. Um, so many of us follow Rick as a pinnacle leader because of what he represents. That's okay to be a capitalist. It's not about the money. It's, not, it's about what the money can do for you, your family, and the community. It's not about the money. But the money helps to take better care of your family and the community and to change the planet. That's something a lot of us can, can follow behind. That's what most of us follow, right? If, if it was as simple as, I'm going to follow you until you make a million bucks, that's not a representation that many of us want to follow. But what we do with that million bucks is what's super interesting, right? So whether it's uh, that you're an innovator and you're the person that's changing the industry, uh, we'll talk about this in a second, but Oleg brought something different because he closed 110 transactions in a month and most of us haven't yet. He's been very innovative the last four years. He's been a busy little bee. Lizzie's sitting in the front row. She's done like 80, 85, 90, and 95 loans in the last four months because she's been developing a CRM for five years before most of us really dug into creating a really great CRM system and process. She was innovating. She was innovating. She was innovating. So people on her team buy into that level of innovation and what she represents. Make sense? So... Here's the big thing, and here's the big risk that Rick takes. This is where uh, uh, people that follow you because of what you represent, it's a big fall from grace, right? If you represent the ideal marriage, if you represent I'm a big giver, if you represent I care about my team more than I care about myself, whatever it is that you represent, what your purpose is, you only get one shot at it. Because if they ever find out that you are anything but authentic in that piece, the reason why they're following you, then you're just like everybody else and they're going to leave quickly. Because it's worse than just working for a boss. Right? It's worse than that. I held you on a pedestal. I saw this good in you. I just gave the best years of my life, the last seven years working for something I thought had purpose in a person that I could count on and you disappointed me and I can't can't work for you anymore. Right? Um... We, many of us listen in the bad boss, the person that claims to be 
the um, I can think of two stories of previous bosses, previous previous bosses. Uh, one of them was this person that's a super 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 Christian, right? That was stealing from his clients. And I know another boss that was a super 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 relationship guy. And then we'd see him cheat when he was on trips. Cheat his wife, right? So those are examples of just like that. It's all gone. I'll look for something better because I can't work with you at what you now represent. Does that make sense? So the pickle level uh, leader, people will follow you to the grave unless you screw it up. Make sense? Any questions around this? Okay, cool. So, so one thing that I want you guys to do, um, something that really helped me a lot, like a lot, a lot, is, um, and you guys all did this, uh, uh, you know, you guys might have did this assignment before, or you guys might do this regularly, but I always like to reverse engineer where I want to be. So, for example, um, if I want to close X amount of loans, how many leads do I need to have? What does my team need to look like? What does our conversion need to look like? Where are my leads coming from? What's the quality of the leads? All that, okay? So, um, why don't we just do, just, I want you guys just for fun, write down a few numbers, okay? A few numbers. Okay, just think about your dream, let's just say dream month, whatever that is, just think about it, okay, how many units would you close, okay, just write write it down, how many units would you close, Um, write down how many team members would you need to have to close that many units, write down how many leads would you have to have the last 90 days, so every month for the last 90 days, to close that many units, and what would your conversion percentage need to look like? Okay? Just for fun. Now I want you guys to ask yourself a question. Okay, so we know all the, you know, we, we know all the numbers. The question that I want you guys to ask yourself is, what do I need to look like as a leader? During that month, during those last 90 days, during, you know, what do I need to look like as a leader? But, a lot of us, when we ask this question, we envision, like, the happy moments. Like, we're high-fiving people as docs are going out left and right, as contracts are coming in, everything is going great, fundings are happening, you keep refreshing your system and just loans keep, you know, funding. I don't want you guys to think about those moments. I want you guys to think about what do you have to look like as a leader during the moments that really suck. Loan files blowing up. Your team missing a call with a client. Now they're blowing you up. Um, You know, disclosures going out wrong. Um, Extensions, you have to continue to ask for extensions. All that stuff, you know, that really, really sucks in our business. You've got to ask yourself, what do I have to look like as a leader in those moments? And put yourself in those moments because those are the moments that define you as a leader with your team. It's the moments when they're in the mud, when they come to you, and the way you respond to them determines whether you're going to be that boss that they talk about forever and follow or that person that they despise and they just want to you know, go and, and, and they're calling back to the person that's been calling them to, for an interview, right? And a lot of us don't realize, especially when times are busy, like right now it's busy, it's busy in our industry. And so um, as, a, as a leader, you have to ask yourself this. You're the tipping point one way or another. So think about this. I'm an LP2 working for me, okay? 
Think about your LP2s working for you. And all of a sudden you have twice as many files, twice as many everything, right? You are overwhelmed, which a lot of our team members are really overwhelmed right now, right? Let's face it, okay? You got pressure from the realtor. You got pressure from the client. You have all the questions. You got all this compliance stuff, everything. And then you're sitting there overwhelmed. And then your LO or your team leader is like, how did you miss this? Are you like, are you kidding me? Like, how did, and you're sitting there thinking like, you just don't get it, right? And we make them feel, we make them feel like, hey, you just, you don't, you don't have what it takes. You're not, you know, you're not special. You're not, versus being saying, hey, don't worry about it. You're super slammed. It's going to be okay. We're going to get it done. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, how'd you solve it? How'd you fix it? What can I do to help you? In that moment, when you realize that's the moment that matters more than anything, like anybody could celebrate, right? Anybody could be great in the moments where everything is going good. The question is, how are you in those moments where it sucks? And when you put yourself in those moments, and trust me, I thought about that, like when we're going into some of our busiest months, I, I always ask myself, I usually do this when I'm either running or cycling, I always ask myself, like, and I try to envision, how do I show up? How do I, hold, you know, how do I hold, hold my team meetings? How do I handle that? How do I handle when my team member comes in and they really, really screwed up? It's completely their fault, but it was just an honest mistake, right? And I, I, I play that through my mind. So when it happens, I'm not the tipping point where now all of a sudden I'm the issue, right? We're all climbing the mountain. Are you the person that's inspiring them, pulling them up, the reason that they want to get to the top? Or you're the person yelling at them to go faster, Right? And a lot of us don't realize most of the time we're the issue. Like, I was the issue most of the time. And a lot of people ask me about last month, they're like, hey, you know, how did it go? Honestly, there was a couple tough times, but for the most part, it was pretty damn, it was great. My team was great. We did, like, it was not as hard as we thought. Like, we went in thinking it was going to be really, like, way harder than it was. And we all grew together. And a lot of them made comments to me, and it actually, like, like, a lot of them sent me messages like, hey, I've never seen you so great before. Like, you've never been so... And it's because of the moments when it sucked, instead of being the person that beats them up, I was the person that lifted them up. Okay? Just think Love about it. that. Yeah, one thing I wrote down, and something I think I learned from Todd years ago, is characters developed in good times, but it's revealed in bad times. Characters developed in good times, but it's revealed in bad times. Right? So when it goes back to when you're working on leadership, leadership assessment and development... Uh, I think this is where we need to start turning the page and understanding like what it really takes, what you're looking for, but then the tactics about what to do every day along the way to develop the good character so that they're prepared, that you're prepared, that they're prepared for the bad moments, right? Um, one thing I talked about in the last class with, with Gavin is it's really important that you understand that there's a 30,000-foot view of business, a 10,000-foot view of business, a 1,000-foot view, and then boots on the ground, Okay. And when you really think about what your organization needs to look like, the only way it will really function is you have to have somebody, and it has to be you if you're the leader. There has to be somebody at 30,000 feet. And they're the one that's looking out saying, this is the way we're going to go. Follow me. Trust me. This is why. This is how. This is who. Trust me we're going this way. That's the 30,000 foot view of, of the business. Okay? Then you have to have that operator that's got the really keen sense. So in theory, it's your team captain if you're at that team size. If you're a Todd size, you're your COO and your CFO by your side. Uh, if you're say U plus three, it's just your best, like duke it out, stays late with you, gets there early with you, the person that's your sidekick uh, in the fight, right? But that person's got to be the 10,000 foot view of, of things to help you with the key objectives. 
right? The 10,000 foot view is, listen, we got a lot of crap going on, but at least these three things are going to be done in the next 90 days, and I'm going to help you, or you're going to do this for me, right? That's that 10,000 foot view. Then you've got your sergeants on the ground. These are the 1,000 foot views. So if you're thinking about a large organization, it might be like a team lead, right? There's a team of three processors, you got a team lead, the most senior processor, as an example. you got some buyer's agent, you got the team lead buyer's agent. It's like the one person that you toss all your million dollar deals to, everyone else gets the $200,000 deals, right? But my point is, is that that's that thousand, uh, uh, thousand foot view, and then you've got the boots on the ground. How many of you guys were bartenders or uh, waiters or waitresses? Raise your hand. The best salespeople are, I'm convinced, I was both, okay? My point is, is that we all know what it means to be in the weeds, Right? And the best business people know how to keep their head out of it, right? If you're a really good bartender or a really, really good server, you knew which one you were about to lose the tip on, even though you're busy over here, and you better get your butt over to Zach in the next 60 seconds. And you kind of see how the left eye, that, that guy's been wrangling his uh, glass for the last two minutes. It means he's thirsty. That's the hint, by the way, to fill up the, the darn glass. And you're going to catch that on the way back. But that's where that different points of view are. And you have to have the ability to bring yourself out of it or have the people help you stay out of it so you're always looking forward. So if you know that's what you're looking for, the question is on your team, do you have those mid-range people or not? Are you always on the bottom level, the thousand-foot view or on the ground, which is preventing you from going to the next level? And this comes to why you have to bring people up underneath you for you to go to the next level. For you to be at 30,000, you can't have everyone on the ground and you at 30,000. Unless you're that single producer with three people. Done. Anything more than that, you have to be ready to pull somebody alongside of you to bring you up. You also can't manage 30 people. You can't have 30 direct reports. Most books, most uh, theories will tell you five to seven people is about the max you have as far as direct reports. So that's where you got to create those levels of leadership over time. Over time. It doesn't mean that somebody's qualified to take the role. One big problem that a lot of companies make is they take the best sales guy and make him what? The sales manager. Horrible choice. Horrible choice. Just because you have the skill set of selling a lot of crap does not mean you know how to manage and lead people and hold people accountable. You're probably a great salesperson because you like people, which means it'd be super hard for you to hold this, hold this person accountable to hitting the metrics or the goal or the units or whatever else it is. Okay? So you got to ask the why and make sure they even want that job and they understand the job in the first place. But what I want to go to is in the assessment phase. And, and uh, Olga and I talked about this briefly as far as what are some th- key things you're looking for or resource that you use in just three to five minutes because everyone's got their own. I obviously talk a lot about DISC, so I do believe it's a really important to understand DISC in general so you know what you're dealing with. There are, uh, there are if you use Manesh Baxi uh, to help you with interviewing for people, uh, different roles, he can really help you if you're not great at DISC, and he's a resource to the core. I also believe in something called um, Strength Finders 2.0. Anyone ever read Strength Finders? There, there are, uh, if you've not done it, you can just buy the book, not read the book. The very back gives you a code to take a test. So you have to buy the, t- buy the book. Don't buy a used one. The code's already been used. Okay, I did that once. Um, but the point is, is you take it, and it tells you what your top five strengths are. Okay. Um, a great salesperson might be a great competitor. They would be a great wooer. So those are things you might be looking for. That's not necessarily what you're looking for in a great leader, right? But if you take the resource of like Strength Finders 2.0, it'll tell you what is this person most, uh, or, or, or like what are they best at? 
right? Are they a good commander? Commander is literally one of the strength finders. They're really great at directing traffic. Uh, one of the strengths in it is uh, helping people work together, right? So I'll tell you literally, is this person I'm trying to bring in this leadership role even good for the job naturally in the first place, based on their past experience on a test that they can't lie on? A third one I really believe in for me is something called the grit test. Uh, there's a book called Grit by Angela Duckworth. Anyone read the book? Cool. I think it's page 68. Take the grid test. It's a best of five, zero to five. Uh, I believe, personally, that the number one best determined for success is a person's grittiness. That's what the book talks about. Like their willingness to just keep on beating their head against the wall until they break through the wall, no matter how long it takes or how much pain I'm going to go through, I'm going to get through the darn wall. Right? Those are the types of people you want around you. Grittiness. I do believe for salespeople, by the way, if you want somebody that says, yeah, I've never been in sales before ever, but trust me, hire me as a loan officer or realtor, make them take the grit test, period. It will give you a good indicator of if they've got what it takes or not. If they're less than a three, don't even think about it. If they're 4.5 or higher, hire them on the spot based on the grittiness if they fit your culture, in my opinion. Okay? Which is the fourth one for me, which is you can't miss the culture fit. Okay? you got to hire based on culture. I believe in hiring and firing based on culture. And so what I mean by this is we have two choices by where to hire. We can hire externally and bring somebody in the mix based on their past skills, based on what they've done somewhere else. We hire that leadership role in or we develop from within. Okay? The core model believes, and I, I, I believe it now, I fought, uh, you know, kicking and screaming for a while, but development of new people is the best way to go. Hiring from within to give people the opportunity to grow from the LP1 to being the team leader to maybe one day being a team captain. If they were the, the processor helping become a manager, if they were the buyer's agent, hopefully one day, or the showing agent to a buyer's agent to maybe a listing agent to team captain, just developing that over time. But it takes the time, energy, and development of the skills. It's a longer road to hoe. So, if you're hiring from outside because you want to skip the step of years and years of development, you cannot miss that you have to hire a good culture fit. Okay? One thing that I always do after my series of interviews, we have three to four interviews that we're all asking, the four of us that interview are asking behavior questions around the core values of our team. Behavior questions around the core values of our team. Those are the interview questions we're doing. But at the very end of that, we have a team lunch where whoever we're looking at hiring has to, is told, congratulations, you made it, you joined the team. Before you join, I want you to be able to meet everyone you're going to work with. They're going to take you out to lunch. What I'm doing is, that is the final interview, but I don't tell that person it's the final interview. Because I want my team to select its own, especially if it's somebody that might come into a leadership role. Because I want them to say, hey dude, you hired this idiot, I'm not going to follow him. They No, you helped me choose the idiot, so get on board, right? Lightly said, but the point is, is that if you really believe in hiring and firing based on culture, then the team should pick their, their teammates and pick the people they're going to follow if you're going to do it that way. Did you have any direction as far as how you hire? I know that uh, you are a flatter organization. Uh, Massive salespeople, salesperson, people following you because you're results-oriented and you're helping people grow. But how do you identify the next people to, to hire on your team? 
Yeah, um, so my, my process is pretty easy. Um, so first off, I think the key is knowing who you want and what position you're hiring for. Um, I feel like a lot of people, um, when they're interviewing, they want to be sold. We're salespeople, so we want to be sold. So when we're sold, we're sold by, by the high eyes that are just super, you know, they're, they're, they're happy, they're, they're uh, high energy, um, they're very social and all that. And, uh, you know, here's the thing. High eyes are great salespeople, but if you're hiring an LP2 and you want, to want them to check boxes, a high eye and a low C is not going to help you get there, right? So I have a, I have a um, three-step process, very similar to Josh's. The first step, I interview them um, with my ops manager, and it's very casual, and we just try to, try to see what kind of personality that, you know, we're working with, um, try to see how much re- research they did on us. I always like to know what they, like, one question I always, always ask is, where, where do you want to be in five years? If they say, I want to be you, that's kind of like, there's no way I'm going to hire you, period. Okay? Now, here's the thing. And a lot of people say, well, well, that's really selfish. Here's the thing. At this point, I'm not developing loan officers, right? I think they should go be an LO. I don't think they should come work for me. They should go be an LO. At this point, because I'm not developing yet, I know that's okay, and I know I'm going to pass on them. At a certain point, I will, which then at that point, that's going to be a great answer, and that's going to, I'm going to put you into an MLA program, Right? So the reason why I tell you this is because I have so many students that they're like, we hired this person, they were so good, and this and this, and then they took half my database, they took my agents, and now they're calling on my agents, and they took a couple team members with them, and it was a mess. And it's like, well, guess what? They sold you because they want to be an LO. You knew they wanted to be an LO. You thought they were going to be around for three years, and they figured out how to do it in nine months, and they left you. And whose fault is that? Right? It's, it's yours. So my point is, is know what position you want. If I'm trying to build a winning team, do I want them all to grow? Absolutely. Do, they, do I want them to um, come in and try to, you know, potentially, um, you, know, uh, you know, potentially take your business and your people? No, you don't, right? So because of that, I'm very, very crystal clear. I don't want LOs on my team. I'm, if you want to be an LO, you should go be an LO. And I tell them that. Like, at the end of the day, I'm like, hey, you know what? You should just be really become an LO or join somebody that has an MLO or MLA program. Now, once I, um, you know, once we uh, interview them, we also have them do a, uh, um, you could call it a mortgage IQ test. And I can't remember who, who provided me the test. I think it was Kevin Polakovich. But it's a simple test where it asks you a bunch of, a bunch of mortgage questions. So they come in, they get a test. Um, so they have to fill it out on the spot, right? They're not expecting it. So we gauge how much do you really know, right? Because you talk to somebody, they, they all know everything, right? But then the question is, are you going to, how, how, you know, how many questions are you going to answer, right? So um, we gauge their mortgage IQ. We have them do the disk test, uh, the full version of it. Um, so we use Minish. If, like for me, I look for high S's and high C's. Those are the people that I look for. Those are going to be long-term um, team members that are going to, you know, want stability. They're going to do what you tell them to do. I try to avoid D's and I's. I have D's and I's on my team, and I'm clear on who they are. And but for the most part, I try to go with S's and C's. Now, 
The last part of, you know, and, and I love Josh's idea, and I'm probably going to use that because that's way better than what I do. I just bring him in for a team interview. Now, when I bring him in for a team interview, I do it for two reasons. One is I want my team to buy in on the person. Two is they might see something that I don't. Like, there was one guy I almost hired, but, like, the whole team got weirded out by him. I thought he was great, but the whole team was just super weirded out by him. And because of that, we didn't hire him. Um, but the biggest thing, more than anything, is I noticed that when your team helps you make the decision, when the person comes in, for whatever reason, your team is like way more supportive. They're way more on board. They're willing to help them. They're willing to show them. Like before, I used to just bring people in. Like, hey, we got a new person. I'm super excited about this new person. And when I had a, a little bit of a smaller team, people felt threatened. They're like, wait, why you got to bring somebody else in? We're doing, doing just fine. Well, we all know if we're hiring to the vision versus the reality, we're always going to have one extra person, maybe two, right? And so I think it's super important to make sure that, you know, no, no matter how, uh, you know, how big your team is, have, make sure that they buy into the person. I think that's huge. So they pass, my, you know, pass the interview with me. Um, they're a high S, high C and everything goes with good with the team, then we pretty much make them an offer and pursue them from there. Love it. Love it, love it. Any questions about that? No? All right, I want to move on real fast. So I want to touch on something that's new that we haven't really talked about before uh, ever. Has anyone heard of a guy named Jim McCormick before? No? So I went to a, a class with, uh, with Jim McCormick, and what he talks about is risk. And this all applies to leadership because you have to decide what type of leader you're going to be. Like I said earlier, one thing I'm super attracted to uh, in general is I'm super attracted to Oleg's business and Lizzie's business uh, and uh, because of the innovation aspect, right? Uh, they both took risks. They both invested lots and lots and lots of money in making their businesses better. And that's not normal for most of us. I totally agree with what Rick said earlier this morning. Without making your, bez- your business better, not bigger, what typically happens when it gets better, it will get bigger too. So this is not in disalignment with that statement, for sure. But here's what I do believe, and this goes back to why are people going to follow you, because I do believe your business is growing, or uh, it is either growing or dying. Unfortunately, I think that some of our businesses are dying because we're not innovating fast enough, okay? And I'll explain it with some methodology. If you turn to a page, uh, page number 213, please. What I want you to do is I'm going to walk through this with you, and this is directly from... Uh, the Intelligence of Risk. So if you want to look the guy up, Jim McCormick, uh, it was a fascinating, fascinating class that I took. So I'm giving him all the credit that's worth bringing to the room. What I want you to do is on a scale of 1 to 10, I want you to go ahead and, and circle the number uh, that is your, uh, what, what you believe your risk inclination is. Okay? 1 being, I take no risks. 10 being, I am open to anything. Okay? I'm not going to qualify any more than that, so don't talk, don't ask questions amongst the table. Just for you, circle the number that you think, how risky are you? Circle a number. Okay? And there's a test on the previous page, uh, 212, so it should probably still be in front of you. I'm going to walk you through this. So after you've circled it, make sure you circle, commit to a number, and do not change it until after we finish this test, because it will help everybody. Okay? So... um, there, what, what came out of this class is that when we all thought of risk, we, we all associated something differently with it, right? So like Zach, just yell out, we don't have to wait for a mic, what did you think of first when you thought of risk? Risk of what? Risk of what? When you think about risk, what do you associate with? Risk of what? 
Losing something. Okay, cool. Lizzie, what do you think of? Innovation. Okay, cool. Haley, what do you think about when it comes to risk? Loss of what? Money. Okay, financial. That's a big one for most of us, right? Here's what I literally thought of. The first thing that came to my head was, well, crap, I jumped off a mountain with Todd Screema. Physical risk. Like, I go scuba diving. I do bungee jumping. I jump off of, of planes. Like, that's literally the association I have with risk. And so when I did that, I wrote, I circled a number that's very, very high because that's what I associate with, okay? What turns out is that there's more than one. So I'm going to walk you through this, and I want you to write down your number, okay? So let's go first is physical risks, like I said. So here, I want you to listen to the definition and you circle number. Activities that involve some risk of injury, riding motorcycles, river rafting, rock climbing, skydiving are examples. Scale of 1 to 10, 10 being I will do that all day, every day, 1 being hell no, right? Go ahead and circle your number. Cool. Number two, career risks. Risks such as job changes, taking on new responsibilities, or seeking promotions. One being nope, one being all day, every day. Go ahead and circle, write down the number. I think it's just write down the number of, uh, go back to the previous page. There's actually, turn your page over. Backwards, the right page. Two, uh, page 212, literally fill out the number. Yes, Jamie? Uh, so one being low. One being low. Ten being high. Yes, great question. Cool. Number three, financial risks. Your risk tolerance in investing, borrow money, or lending money. Your risk tolerance in investing, borrowing money. I invested in movies, bars, and restaurants. I'm fairly high, right? Some people that I know have literally all their money in CDs and bonds and checking accounts. They would be low, okay? I'm not recommending that you invest in movies and bars and restaurants for the record. Okay? Next one. Four, social risks. Risks like introducing yourself to somebody you don't know or putting yourself in an unfamiliar situation, even at the risk of possible embarrassment. Ten being, yep. One being, peace out. High risk, low risk. Write down your number. Next one. Intellectual risks. Things like your willingness to study a difficult topic, pursue information that challenges your convictions, or read an intellectually challenging book. Tim, Tim being super interested in the world and want to learn about everything, even if I don't understand it. One being, I'm super comfortable, I don't like to learn new stuff. There are some people in the room that put a one down, I guarantee it. Put down your number. Creative risks. Lizzie's going to be a Tim. Risks such as painting, drawing, taking on writing challenges, or pursuing unconventional designs, risks such as offering new and unconventional ideas to your company. Ten being, I want to create new things, create new things. One being, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Next one, relationship risks. Risks such as willingness to pursue a new relationship, spend time with somebody despite an uncertain outcome, or making a relationship commitment. Ten being, yes, I'm willing to try new things. I'll meet anyone, anywhere. One being, nope, I like my group of friends. I'll stay put. Last two, emotional risks. This is your willingness to be emotionally vulnerable. To share your reality with the world is super uncomfortable. Ten is, listen, I'll show you every bad and good thing in my life. One being, I will tell you the good stuff in my life. I will never share the bad stuff. That would be embarrassing. Emotionally vulnerable. Okay? Last one is spiritual, spiritual risks. 
Willingness to place your trust in concepts that may be unprovable or that you do not understand. Okay? This is an interesting one for me. Uh, I literally was Jewish growing up. I was bar mitzvah. Most people don't know that. I converted to Christianity. That is very difficult to do, by the way. When you're looking and finding and testing theories that are not in line with your parents, it's difficult to do that. I would put myself as a tin in this area. I'll, I'll listen to what you have to say. If I believe it, I'll do it. Right? So go ahead and add them all up and divide it by nine. Add them all up and divide by nine. Add them all up. You can take out your smartphone for one minute. Add them all up and divide by nine. Cool. Raise your hand if you're within a 0.5 variance of your initial number. Raise your hand. Less than half the room. Okay. Here's an interesting truth just to learn from this. Okay. Guys tend to overestimate. Guys saying we're risky in general. I, I'm going to run through doors. And uh, on average, if it's not within that 0.5 variance, it's lower for most guys. For most guys, not all guys. Raise your hand if that was true for you, guys. Huh, interesting. For most guys, they overestimated their number. They put down a 7 and it was less than that if it was not within a 0.5 variance. Is that true, Zach? True statement? Cool. So we have a really good opinion of ourselves. I'm risky. I will fight you, right? Women, on average, underestimate themselves because most women tie risk to financial, right? And so if you were not within a 0.5 variance, most women's number was higher than they give themselves credit for. Raise your hand if you're a woman, and that was true for you by accident. Okay, quite a few women. So here's what's interesting. Here's why I want to apply this to leadership, okay? So remember I said that you got to be a 30,000-foot view or at least higher than everybody else in your team. When it comes to risk... And we, we typically think in business of it as being risk mitigation. Okay? The opposite of that is risk innovation. Like, where, where's that thing that's a little bit on the outside of what's comfortable that I'm going to try to push the needle and it's something that people can get in behind me? And that's a little different way of looking at things. So there's a spectrum of risk that I want to finish up on because I want to make sure that you guys are clear about this. And what has been a truth for me, not for everybody in the room, but for me was... When I started in this business, and most people did as well, and you took your first commission job, your risk tolerance was a 10, literally. Hey, I want to learn a foreign language in a new business I've never done before ever. Don't pay me. We'll figure it out. Think about that. Level 10 on risk. But then you had something to lose over time. You started to make some money. You got a little bit jaded. I tried this once. That crap doesn't work. Don't want to try that again. That wasn't fun. Don't want to do that again. Hired the person that took all my business. Don't want to hire a person again. And we start peeling back our risk tolerance. And we get uh, less innovative. And we are being Uberized in our industries if we let the Uberization happen. So we have to keep on fighting for every little piece of the puzzle. And so the, the risk spectrum looks like this. There's only three pieces. On the left side, the far side of your left, you want to make a little graph. The far side is what we all perceive as mandatory risk. Mandatory risk. The average person in the world says, I have to pay for housing, so I sign a 30-year commitment on a mortgage, or I pay five grand a month on rent or something. But they look at that as, I got to live somewhere, it's mandatory risk. For some of us small business owners, we're willing to hire an employee. So we know that, hey, I'm not good at this crap, or I don't want to do this crap, or I know I need to hire somebody to grow, so i got to take on the risk of a salary, as an example. But we look at that as a mandatory risk. It's about one-third of the risk out there. The next out there is what's called optional risk. So that middle layer is what's optional risk. And this is typically tied directly 
to what number you wrote down right there. Based on your risk tolerance, I'm willing to go a little bit edgy. I'll throw some money at this new social media thing. I'll throw some time into this recruiting MLAs. I'll try out this crazy core thing and throw a couple thousand bucks a month at it for two years. Right? That's an optional risk. You don't have to. But you saw enough value in it and you chose to and you took that risk. That's the optional risk. The combination of those two is what's defined as your comfort zone. A plus B equals your comfort zone. And what I put in your head is that it's shrinking. Your comfort zone is shrinking. I want to put that in your head. Based on your actions over the last couple of years, it's probably shrinking on average, right? The third area is called your avoided risk. And what I want to put out there as far as the avoided risk is, don't think of it in terms of not ever. Think of it in terms of not now. Like, I used to ride a motorcycle. Then I had three kids. I'm not going to ride motorcycles until they're at least in college. I'm choosing to not do that because I want to be around and give myself a little better chance. I'm avoiding that risk, right? Other avoided risks you might think of, uh, what it, it's, uh, don't fit right now. I know I want to do a podcast. It's going to come out sometime in 2020. I'm going to do it. But I've been putting it off because of time, energy, and money for about two years now. So it's been this avoided risk. Okay? So what I'm trying to do to lead and inspire my team is to move my comfort zone a little bit back into that avoided risk area. To punch that comfort zone out just a little bit. And that's an area that I would call your area of opportunity. That's the opportunity zone. You punch that line out from your uh, comfort zone into that avoided risk just to bite a little bit back. I'm, a, I'm finally going to call my past clients. I'm going to lead by example. I'm going to finally commit to going to work and being at home on time every time at the risk of I think my business is going to fall apart. I'm going to finally hire that employee because I believe, based on what my coach told me, they'll take me to the next level. I'm going to take on a little bit of that avoided risk in, the, in 2020. And that's what becomes inspiring to people. When you really look at those five levels of leadership, and so many of us get stuck in that relational or that results-based leadership, you're trying to move into what are you doing for other people to move the needle? We have to grow. If we don't grow, our business will die off over time. This is part of getting better and attracting and keeping those people that have been around waiting for, what are you going to do next, boss? Where are we going from here, boss? What are we, what are we going to do? This is a piece of the puzzle, in my opinion. Any questions around this risk spectrum? Lisa. What was the last uh, uh, avoided risk? What was the last one? Yeah, avoided risk the last one. So you've got mandatory, optional, then avoided. Mandatory, I feel like I have to do it anyways. Optional, I choose it because I'm comfortable with it. That's a, a risk that I, like, Todd and I talk about investments a lot. So we talk about, well, if you know real estate, why wouldn't you have a few rental properties? Like, you know the values pretty well. You know you, you're going to mitigate your risk a lot. It's in your comfort zone, right? But then there's the optional risk of, hey, there, this is outside my comfort zone. I'm not really familiar with it, so I'm not going to try it at all. But start thinking in terms of, it's not a never, it's just not a not right now. We want to regain a little bit of that because we've been peeling back based on being jaded by bad experiences, bad outcomes, bad results from trying things. We've been more and more comfortable because we have something to lose now. Does that make sense? Those of you that have a million bucks in the bank, I, I guarantee you know what I'm talking about. You get your million, you don't want to lose that million. Right? You finally got out of debt. You don't want to go back into debt ever again. It was too painful. So you act a little bit differently with how you invest and how you spend because of that. You avoid that risk. Make sense? Cool.
Let's go into our, our tactics. Let's tactics. get straight into the day-to-day things that we do day in and day out to help promote and grow these leaders from within. Because uh, arguably you can go hire a hired gun. It's going to cost you a lot and you're risking a fraction of your culture. So we want to focus on what are the things that we do day-to-day to promote and, and teach and inspire leaders from within. It's a harder road, road to plow, but in theory it's a better road overall. Make sense? Cool. You want to go through your, yours so, first? So, why don't we just go back and forth? I'll go with one tactic. The first one I would say is you got to be able to call an audible. A lot of times when we're like overly busy, what I do is I would just cancel our team meeting. Now, most people are like, well, why would you cancel your team meeting? At the end of the day, if you have the right people in place, you don't need them to tell you what they're doing and what they need to do. They just know. And I think the ability to call an audible, whether it's, you know, lead gen, um, like one other example too is, you know, last year, we all faced that moment, and it's probably going to happen sometime in our career again, where your team is a little too big. And you've got to decide, what am I going to do, right? You can't continue. Either you've got to get more leads, or you've got to let people go. You've got to close more deals, you've got to let people go. So, um, for me, I always look at those moments as an opportunity. So, um, what I did is I got everybody in a conference room, I said, hey, look, writing's on the wall. Here's how big our team is. This team just let go of people. This team let go of people. I don't want to do that ever. But here's the deal. If we don't get our numbers here, we're going to have to. So what are we going to do? We're going to switch up, you know, what we do. So in addition to being an LP2, now all of a sudden you have to call two agents a day. You have to write one thank you card a day. You have to call one past client a day. And think about this. How much time is this going to really take? And then you start getting buy-in. But in addition to that, you don't just say you have to call. You've got to say, let's break it down, okay? When you call an agent, here's what you say, here's how you say it, here's how you ask for that referral, and it's not, the, it's not so bad. Then you role play, right? So um, you have to be able to call an audible. I think that's huge in that. those moments. And, yeah, the opportunity uh, is in, in the obstacle. Yeah, next thing is how do you actually write people up and, and uh, deal with conflict? Um, so I've been teaching something for a couple of years, and it's really simple because it removes the emotion for, from me. For forever, I was horrible at conflict. Now I'm a lot better. Uh, Lizzie's really good at it. She taught me a few things, too. Um, but here's what I do, literally. It's one, two, three. First one is I'm sorry. First one is I'm sorry. Write down I'm sorry. Second one is I'm confused. Third one is first and final. Okay, so this is what it means to me. Okay? Um, hey, Oleg. Dude, I apologize. Uh, I was not crystal clear with what my expectations of you are. And you're my LP1, okay? okay? I expect you to call all my all leads within two hours, 100% of them. I expect you to update the agent the same day, and I expect the 35% bust and share ratio. So I really apologize because I wasn't crystal clear, and I apparently didn't give you the training. The reason why I'm saying that is, uh, in the last seven days, I've gotten two agents that have complained they didn't get any, they didn't hear back about the disposition of a lead, okay? So my apologies, but a number one, are you really clear about what we're going to do moving forward? Yeah. And do you need any training, any of that? Because I'm happy to help you train if you don't think you can accomplish those three goals. I think we should, should be able to, yeah. Okay. If you want any role-playing, uh, role anything that comes up, I want to help you succeed. That's my job, okay? But we're really clear about what we're doing moving forward, right? Yeah. Perfect. So a week goes by. Get another email from an agent that says, I haven't heard crap, okay? So this is what this sounds like. I'm confused. Hey, Oleg, I'm super confused, dude. I feel like we just had a conversation a week ago. I feel like we just talked about the top three job duties and you said you knew how to do it, and you said you were trained, yet I just got this another, another email from the same agent saying that they didn't give any, get any updates on, to, uh, 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 on the leads. 
So I just, I'm really confused. Tell me what's going on. Well, you know, I just got really busy and you have me calling on, you know, our past clients and I just thought that was more important, so I was just calling on the past clients and I just didn't get to it, so it took me a little longer, but I did update them. Man, I love that you're, I love you gave me some honesty there and some transparency. I love that about you. Here's the deal. There's lots of things that are going to be disruptors every day. There's lots of distractions every day. We're going to have good days and bad days. Your top three job duties are pre-qualify everyone within two hours, update the agents the same days, and get 35% butts and share ratio. You're really clear about that, right? Yeah. So if things fall off the side, it can be anything but those three things. Are we crystal clear? Yeah, we're clear. Perfect. A week goes by. I get an email from an agent that says, haven't heard crap. First and final. Sit down, write it up. Oleg, dude, I'm sure you know why I'm here, right? Dude, I really don't like that agent, man. I ain't going to lie to you. Okay, dude. So here's... (laughs) I love your honesty and transparency, Oleg. That's what I really like about you. That being said, if you can't do this job, then you can't work here. This is not a threat. But the top three job duties, as we've discussed twice now, is you have to pre-qualify accurately within two hours. You must update the agent the same day. You must do a 35% bust and share ratio. Okay? I don't know how else to, develop, to deliver this, so I'm writing this up. I need to sign the bottom. This is the last time we're going to have this conversation. Are you sure there's no training that you need from me? I want you to be successful. Yeah. No, I, I got it, Josh. Just want you to know, like, every FICO we pull from that agent to the 580. <laughs> Just want to let you know. So... Guys, I think that's really important is to show people through your actions, through your words, the clarity to teach leaders how to lead other people around you as well. Okay, what's your next tactic? So I'm going to, I want to piggyback on what Josh said, and I'm sure Josh does this, but one thing I do in addition to what Josh does is I explain the why. So I'll say, hey, Josh, the reason, the reason why we call back leads Excellent. within two hours is because conversion rate goes down dramatically. So if we want to hit our conversion rate goal, and we talked about that in the beginning of the year, if we don't call them back within two hours, all of a sudden we might have lost them. Now, that might not matter on one lead or two leads, but imagine on 2,000 leads, let's say 200 of them, we missed the boat and we call them back later. Well, we just lost 200, you know, 200 clients that are going to get us their documents and let us get pre-approved from them. That's why we got to call back leads first. Any questions on why that. that's number one? I love that. That's excellent. And, and the reason why I do that, too, is I realize hey, once you have children, you realize, like, you got to explain the why. If you don't explain the why behind, here's why we do homework and we go to school and we get good grades, right? Like, if they don't understand the why, it's going to be hard for them to do it because then it's just you standing there, you know, pounding on them, pounding them on, pounding on them. I want to program them to where they get it. Like, they see two calls come in. One is a new lead. One is somebody that we're already working with. They automatically jump on that new lead. Right? So the key to, in my opinion, with your team, too, is you've got to explain the why behind the tactics. they got to buy into the tactics. If they don't buy into the tactics or understand the why, that's when you're going to have your wheels spinning. And a lot of us have that, right? Because we don't spend that extra time going into the why. Love that. My next one that I always uh, think about wholeheartedly is never solve a problem in a vacuum. A lot of us are really guilty of, we are problem solvers, we know how to make it rain, we know how to fix it, we know what to say to a client to make them happy again, we know what to say to a referring partner to get them back on board, we know what to say to an underwriter to, to move the needle, and we go behind closed doors, shut the doors, and we come out, and we're like, it's good, don't worry about it, daddy got this, right? And raise your hand if you're guilty of that, you've done that at least once in the last year. Okay, cool. Bad leadership. You want to show them how to process the problem. 
So whenever you're having, whenever you're fixing something, call them in to the appointment. Call them in the phone call. Watch them watch you handle the objection for why they're not going to come in to meet with you. Watch them watch you uh, take, like I love how I said at the beginning of it, it's your fault always, it's your team. So if you have a pissed off client, say, hey dude, I appreciate that you told me the client's pissed off, come in here, I'm going to handle it. Hey, this is Josh Segman, I apologize, we dropped the ball. That's my fault, okay? And then you show them what your script and methodology is on and how to process the problem. The key here is that most people, when they get into this, uh, there is a problem of any kind, they go into an emotional state. And they can't be in that creative space to fix it because they're in that emotional state. So you have to remove them from that and teach them how to take a breath, come up with a game plan, follow the script. This is how I process the problem. This is how I approach the underwriter. This is the format to handle a off client. This is what I say and how I say to overcome this objection. Because we all got light years worth of coaching just in the core, let alone the books we read, let alone the tens of thousands of clients we personally dealt with, good, bad, and ugly. We have to keep on feeding them to help them speed up the process unless we're willing to wait 15 years for them to experience all the same learning lessons. The way you leapfrog it is never fix a problem in a vacuum. Make sure they're present and accounted for. And once it's done, say, Oleg, what did you learn? Period. One thing, what do you hear, what do you learn before you leave the room? Next one. You know, and uh, I'll kind of add to that too. I think there's nothing more powerful than your team seeing you fall on the sword, making that call, hearing why the client's upset. It's like after that, a lot of times you don't even have to even say much. Like they just got it. And that sticks with them. That moment sticks with them. So I've been using that a lot where we close late and we got somebody really, really upset and an, a listing agent wants me to call them. I have them just sit and listen. And then they, they hear everything that's said and it's like, hey, okay. And you fall on the sword, you take responsibility for it. And then they just walk away and they just, they got it. Right? I think that's huge too. Um, so we got a few minutes left. Yeah, about three more. Let's do it. We can do this. We can do three more each. We're just going to rattle them off. Uh, my next one is you have to create a safe word. Uh, my safe word is a coaching moment. So here's what I mean by this. Uh, you're going to walk through the office or whatever, and somebody on your team is going to say something to a client that you overheard. And you're like, oh, God, I can't believe you just said that, right? Or they're going to piss you off, or they, they, you need to correct the behavior, right? My safe word in my office I've been doing for 10 years is I need to give you a coaching moment. Years ago, what I said to them was, listen, if I ever come to you, and I say, coaching moment, I don't want you to defer, I don't want you to deflect, I don't want you to defend, I just want you to listen to what I observed and what I would do differently. So if I heard somebody say something wrong to a client, that they were defensive to this off agent, say, after, after they finish, I let them finish the conversation, hey Liz, you're open to a coaching moment. Safe word, I'm not going to attack you, I'm not pissed off, but you need to hear what I heard and you need to learn from it. That's a big one. Have a safe word that they're prepared for so they can be in that receiving the information kind of moment. One more for you, one more for me. I, I think one really, really big one for me and one that I struggled with forever is when you delegate something to your team, it's like after you delegate it, you're right over there standing there making sure they do it right or you're checking in with them over and over and over again. What you're ultimately telling them is I don't trust you. I don't trust you to make the decisions. I don't trust you that you're going to pull through. And so a lot of us don't realize, like, we want to build this team around us that does everything for us, lets us leave, and they take care of it all. And a lot of us don't realize when you delegate, like, 
it's okay if your team messes up and fails. Like, they have to go through that. They have to learn that. And that's okay. And it's going to happen. You can't handhold, you know, the whole time. And so delegate trust and power and walk away and let them do their thing. Love it. Last one for me is you have to say you're sorry a lot. Uh, here's what I mean by that. Uh, our teams think we're perfect in a lot of ways, and then they work with us for a couple of years, and they know for sure we're not. Okay? And for some reason, we hide the truth from them, right? So we didn't actually do our power hour, but we don't think that they noticed. We didn't act, That client canceled their meeting, and we went and got a haircut instead. So what we've got to do when it's all said and done is we have to say, I'm sorry, I screwed up, I'll be better tomorrow. Here's what happened. Here's what I'm going to do moving forward. We have to be um, accurate with our words. We have to be radically transparent. We have to be totally authentic in order for them to stick with us because we need to teach them how to do that for the people around them. People will follow authentic people. They will. They'll follow you with all your warts. They will. But you have to be willing to tell them where you're screwing up. So we're out of time. Um, One final thought. Um, Here's the thing, guys. Like, our team, they go through a lot of stuff for us. Like, they go, I mean, they, like, we don't, I feel like a lot of times we're not grateful enough to our team. And so, the biggest thing that I want to just leave you guys with is, one, we don't say thank you enough, so say thank you more, but what it really comes down to very simply is just love on your team. If you love on your team, they're going to love on your clients. Like, it's, it's an honor that they, like, we, that they work with us. Like, we are lucky to have them. Imagine how it, like, how it would be without your team right now. Like, and we, like, very, very, I guess I'm speaking for myself. I mean, I, I just don't think, say thank you enough. And I think that there's never enough thank yous we could, you know, give to our team. And there's, there's, there, there's nothing that we could do more than just to just love on them. And we love on them. They love on our clients. Cool beans. Thank you, Oleg. Thank you. You've been listening to the Core's Sales Training Bootcamp. For registration information about our two-day business building summits, call 1-800-660-6670 or find us on the web at www.thecoretraining.com.